Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 28th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The National Public Health Emergency Team gave a press briefing yesterday. Now, NEFID updates are never a barrel of laughs, but at a time when we expected to be getting on top of the COVID-19 pandemic, yesterday's briefing seemed to be particularly grim. Unfortunately, our, our cases, our incidents... Uh, and the numbers in hospital and ICU are all continuing to increase. We are seeing significant pressure on our hospital system as a result of the profile disease at present. That pressure has, of course, its knock-on effects. We're seeing cancellation of elective activity. We're seeing significant staff absences. And the virus, once again, seems to be everywhere. We've seen outbreaks in nursing homes. And unfortunately, test positivity is increasing across almost all age groups. Lower numbers in the first couple of days of this week are possibly down to the bank holiday and how the numbers are counted. There's a significant caveat around the bank holiday weekend and delayed presentations, and we'll have to see how that plays out over the coming days. Uh, But broadly speaking, we're seeing cases and numbers in hospital uh, increasing at somewhere between 1% and 3% today. So will that continue to grow? Our future trajectory is very uncertain. Winter now looms and concern is growing. We understand that we're going to going to have significant pressure on the health system. We're going to have significant high incidence in, in the short term over the weeks to come. Uh, but that doesn't have to remain the case. The solution to this, if there is one, Neffet says, lies in our hands. Again, we're calling for strength and communication, guidance and compliance across all sectors in relation uh, to the basic protective measures that we've been promoting through the pandemic. The Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr Roland Lynn, speaking at that press briefing yesterday. And we'll hear much more from that briefing throughout uh, the programme today. But let's go to Dr Alona Duffy, a GP based in Monaghan and uh, the Medical Director of NE Doc. A very good morning to you, Dr Duffy, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I think there's probably some confusion about the place. Uh, there's certainly some confusion in my little head in that I think throughout this pandemic, uh, trusted in the public health advice, I'm finding it very hard to understand at the moment. And I think that's a problem that a a lot of people have. We're seeing a significant increase in the number of cases. 
We do know that people are, are not getting sick or very sick or dying on the same scale because of the vaccine. But we also know that there's severe pressure on the hospitals and on ICU and that we are seeing a significant amount of deaths. 164 deaths in September, 116 in October, three to five deaths being reported a day, on average 67 deaths in the course of the last week. But we're reopening uh, with very little restriction. Uh, We're seeing people in queues for nightclubs. We're seeing people on top of each other. We'll see people at the Ireland-Portugal game hugging each other and celebrating a a great sporting occasion, which is wonderful if it was safe. Uh, And the message seems to be uh, one of personal responsibility, that the regulation is going to be light-touch regulation and the emphasis is on that personal responsibility. Uh, But... You can only be responsible for yourself and you can't be responsible for other people. And if they're not acting responsibly, how is that in the interest of public health? Maybe you could explain some of that to us this morning. Gosh, well, I think there is huge confusion and huge frustration probably amongst people. And people like us all want this all to go away and want it to be over with. And I suppose the great white hope had been the vaccinations and the vaccinations would eradicate it and we'd end up getting rid of COVID. Unfortunately, we realise not only here but throughout the world that while vaccination does play a role and has played an important role in protecting people and preventing serious illness in the majority of people who are vaccinated that we still have not been able to eradicate this infection, that it continues to mutate, it continues to spread, and it's likely that it will continue to do so. We know that our hospital figures are rising, and especially our ICU figures, and my understanding is that they're as high as they were during the real peak last March, so that is of concern. But we also know that the majority of those who are in those ICU beds, so those who are critically ill, are unvaccinated people, which again, it goes back to the message, if you haven't been vaccinated and have been worried about getting the vaccine for whatever reason, talk to your GP, read up the data on the HSC website and consider getting vaccinated, not only to protect yourself, but also to protect others. Because I suppose the other bit is that while most of our at-risk people have been vaccinated, we know that in certain groups that vaccine effect is is waning. And once you're over the six months that the, the protection you have is dropping, so for our older members of our community, for those who have underlying health conditions, they are now back to being at that slightly higher risk, not as high a risk as they would be if they weren't vaccinated, but still higher risk, which is why we're trying to move ahead with certain groups and give them a booster. But that's going to take time. And in the meantime, they are vulnerable. So it's back to that personal responsibility, mm. get vaccinated to protect yourself and others. But also, as was Michael, I'd say we are facing huge resistance to people with regards to testing. We're seeing that in daytime surgery. We're especially seeing it in the out-of-hours system where people are ringing about themselves and about their children and saying, well, I know it's not COVID. It's not COVID. I suppose the real thing is you may know it's not COVID, but nobody else knows it's not COVID and nobody can know unless you've had a negative COVID test. So I think if you've developed symptoms, self-refer, go get the test. We all know how easy it is Mm. to get it done. We know how fast you get your results back. But at least then you know you're safe for yourself and to others around you. And I think that's the most important message. And especially with our children, because we know that the rates have risen in the school-going age and that the the highest positivity rate at present. So that's no surprise. Mm. And again, the the children are likely to remain well. There is concern in the UK about long COVID in in children, but that doesn't seem to be a major issue. And, And while it's long COVID, it doesn't be as severe as in adults. So I think, again, get tested is the message and it'll also make it easier if you have a sick child to have that child seen by your GP 
see both in daytime and out of hours when we know it's safe for us to bring you into the mm-hmm. surgery. Yeah, because uh, there are plenty of us who can't get vaccinated, uh, not just uh, adults uh, who, on medical advice, aren't being uh, vaccinated. Uh, there's a, a lot of concern about uh, the rise in the number of cases in children aged 5 to 12. Yeah, there is. And again, look, of course, it, it, it's going to spread. We know that this is a highly transmissible virus and these are groups who are together their primary school, they're not wearing masks. And I mean, there's been a lot of debate about whether we should have our primary school going children wearing masks or not. And the decision has been made not to. And while that may allow more easy transmission of it, personally, I think that's a good decision. I think Mm. it's been hard enough on our children and trying to enforce mask wearing and the difficulties that that causes for them, I think, would make school all the harder. I think it is also about decisions that have been made that I don't think were right. I think the the lack of contact tracing or the lack of just Mm. informing parents that there's a positive case in the classroom is wrong. And I would say that that has to be a factor in the increase in the the rates within the school setting. So I think the decision to not force children who are close contact to remain at home for 14 days to remove that, I think that was a wise decision. But I think we could have looked at other countries, even just across the border, where if your child is deemed a close contact, they have a test and they can go back to school if that test is negative and they're advised of another test at day 10. And I think we could have introduced something like that. But I think most importantly, all parents whose child is a close contact should be informed that their child is a close contact because they can then protect others in their home setting and in their bubbles and amongst their extended family who may be vulnerable and they can make sure that their child isn't mixing with those people. So I'm thinking like a grandparent you know, that they won't have their child maybe visiting the grandparents for a period of time after that close contact to ensure their child isn't an asymptomatic spreader. Or after this weekend, for example, with uh, trick-or-treating and so on, that will take place over Halloween. Uh, and that was one of uh, the things uh, that uh, the members of Neffet were saying. If you go to a nightclub uh, this weekend or if you went last weekend, perhaps you'd keep uh, some distance between yourself and others who may be vulnerable. Uh, and the same after trick-and-treating and all of that kind of thing. I think so. I think the nightclubs very definitely the trick or treating. I think um, masks could be incorporated into your outfit. Nice. So I don't think, you know, we are a lot of kids wear face masks anyway, the big, the plastic, the old ones that we wore as children. So I think they're going to be outside, the majority of them. And, and I think, you know, that I don't see as being a bigger problem as obviously the nightclubs and the gatherings close together. But it does go back to the issue that if you have any symptoms, don't just presume this is Mm. just a simple head cold. A lot of the children that we're seeing who are testing positive um, when we've asked the mums to take them for the testing or the dads to take them for the testing, it's been really mild symptoms. And, you know, parents have been surprised and, gosh, you know, they're not sick. You know, in normal times, I wouldn't even have contacted a doctor about them. I'd have just given them their calpol and they'd have been better in a few days. Mm. And the reality of it is that most children will get very mild symptoms which will be the same type of symptoms that we would see at this time of the year with other viruses. But don't presume it's another virus. Just get the test done and be reassured for yourself and those around you. All right. And we know that if uh, we're vaccinated, uh, we're not uh, immune to this disease. There's breakthrough infections and the vaccines, as you said, Dr Duffy, are starting to wane somewhat. Uh, So there's the prospect of getting the virus. So we need to do all of uh, the things uh, that we've been told from the beginning when it comes to cough etiquette and washing our hands and keeping our distance from other people and so on. Uh, But I see Professor Luca O'Neill suggesting uh, that vaccinated people are 63% less likely to spread the virus than people who are not vaccinated. Is that something you'd agree with? Well, there's mixed data on that because uh, data that was coming from Israel seemed to suggest that they were equally likely to have um, that 
spreading ability. So their viral load was as high because initially we felt that, well, if you were vaccinated and you did meet the virus and you got a mild version of it, you weren't going to develop a high viral load, meaning you wouldn't be able to spread it on as easily. But data from other countries seemed to be disappointing us in that sense and that it was suggesting that um, you could as easily pass it on if you were symptomatic despite being vaccinated. So again, that message then for us was changing and that it was very much that if you have symptoms of any sort and you are vaccinated to again go and get tested because prior to this, I think there probably would have been a feeling you know, amongst mm. from the public and probably amongst us in, in medicine and in general practice, well, we were going to be less likely to refer someone who's fully vaccinated if they had symptoms of a head cold. Now we know we absolutely must ensure that those people are getting tested. Mm. And we're dealing with the Delta variant, uh, but there's also a, a, a new mutation of that Delta Plus, uh, I think they're calling it. Now, there's very few cases of that, but regardless of whether it's Delta or Delta Plus, uh, this seems to be particularly virulent and people are, are picking it up. Uh, what would you expect for people who have not been vaccinated? Are some people immune to it? Because some people seem to think that they are immune to it. Is that actually the case? Well, it's, it's one of a family of viruses and people may have met a similar type one and built up a low-grade immunity already, so they have a better ability to fight it. And our responses to viruses seem to vary. It can vary on our previous exposure. It can vary depending on our underlying health. And, you know, all of those things. And perhaps there is some question about our exposure. So if you're exposed repeatedly or have a high viral load exposure, you may get a worse kind of dose of the disease. Mm. That was one of the things that was mooted very early on and why perhaps some healthcare workers, because they were perhaps meeting it in the hospital setting, seemed to get sicker, seemed to have more of a response. So, again, data is continuing to be gathered on that. And we're learning as we go with this. You're right, there is a new variant, the Delta Plus variant. It is uh, deemed to be much more contagious. But we're still learning and we have very few cases here. But that will change. I mean, last year when the Delta variant arrived um, in late 2020, it seemed to be very few cases. And it was only in when we started into the new year that we saw the explosion of the cases that really happened as a result of lots of travelling over Christmas mm. and coming from the UK. So um, we could expect to see an explosion again in cases. And we are seeing a rise in cases in other countries. The Netherlands are struggling. They're talking about reintroducing some kind of restrictions as are other countries. So I think we've got to remember, again, there are flows with this waxing and waning. We will continue to see this, especially as we see other variants come forward. And we're likely to see those variants mix and mingle quicker now because we are having travel because a year ago there was no travel. So we weren't seeing a variant in another country coming as easily to us as might have done um, in other years. But again, we're now back to increased travel, increased spread. So it's going to be more variants, but also um, we're going to see more influenza and other types of viruses like that. And we know Mm. that um, that NEFAD have advised on that and warned that those who require the flu vaccine, those people who are at risk and all people who are over the age of 65 should get the flu vaccine and they may not have last year we know the uptake was very low last year Mm. but we'd be encouraging people to get it this year because there's going to be flu or certainly more flu there already is flu there already Mm. is flu we know there are positive cases already and I think uh, it's expected that it'll be a particularly nasty dose of flu uh, the variant uh, that's going around this year and could cause its own significant problems uh, for people it's terrible to think though of uh, COVID or flu or anything like that getting into nursing homes again and it is getting into nursing homes uh, again and uh, the Taunisha has been talking about uh, COVID passes needed uh, for hospital visits. I take it that would be extended uh, to nursing homes uh, and uh, you'd wonder if uh, that should apply to visitors and staff 
uh, and uh, if uh, these passes should be extended elsewhere, as uh, we've been discussing on the programme, uh, this idea that's being implemented elsewhere of uh, no jab, no job. Yeah, well, we're seeing that happening in more and more countries. And and I think if you're working in the healthcare sector and you're going to be dealing with patients on a face-to-face basis, you have an obligation to be vaccinated. And the Irish Medical Council some years ago issued guidance on that to doctors saying that if you are, with regards to the flu vaccine, that you had a responsibility not only to yourself, but also to your patients who you might expose to this virus. And that was the flu at the time. I think it should be very similar with regards to COVID, that unless there's an absolute medical reason that you can't be vaccinated, mm. um, you really have a duty of care to the patients and to protect them and protect yourself to, to yourself to ensure that you're able to work. And um, what's happening at the moment, as we see, is is people getting sick with COVID again and having to go out and we're seeing hospital services having to be cancelled. Now, that's not because they're not vaccinated, unfortunately. As we've already said, you can be vaccinated and become infected again. Okay. Dr Duffy, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning, as always. Dr Lona Duffy is a GP based in Monaghan and is uh, the medical director of NEDOC. Michael Reed on LMFM. You just can't get the staff. Uh, that's literally what uh, they're saying across a number of sectors. As a result, thousands of work permits are to be made available to people who would like to work in this country from outside of the European Union. Let's uh, speak uh, to Minister of State uh, for Business, Employment and Retail, Damien English TD, who's announced uh, this uh, change to the permit system. Uh, very good morning to you, Minister. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. How many people would you envisage will be able to find work in this country as a result of the changes you're announcing? Well, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Um, I suppose, first of all, uh, the the permit system is is not been for a long number of years now, and it works extremely well to deal with labour shortages in certain sectors at any given time. So we do this piece of research uh, every six months to analyse where there's a shortage or where there's a gap or where there's a difficulty in the various sectors. So uh, with the changes we're announcing today, specifically in the construction sector, the HGV driver, uh, general employment permits for hospitality managers, uh, the whole area of social workers, and then horticulture, which will be key to our in the northeast, is that the whole area of the social workers in the horticultural sector. So there's an over over a thousand uh, permits will be allowed for. That doesn't mean they'll all be mm. used, but they will be allowed for. Uh, likewise, in the in the meat processing operatives business, there's over 1,500 directly for them and 500 for the owners. The, the general permit scheme is open as well to, 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 the, to those who are, who are on lists to allow for that. Um, you're asking me how many will avail of this. These particular announcements are, are, are targeted at the areas that are under immense pressure based on evidence mm. presented by them and all the relevant departments, and we work on that as well. Generally, though, this year as an example, there's about 17,000 applications for permits. To, for people to come into the country across all the various sectors. Um, and we try to process them. That's a 40% increase compared to last year. Uh, and then uh, compared to 2019, which is before COVID, it's about a 25% increase. So there's a lot of interest in this area. But naturally, we were trying to work with all employers to source um, staff and labour people, let labour locally first. And then if you can't source it in Ireland, then you go, you go to Europe. And it's only after that that we permit permits uh, outside of that as well because naturally we like to try to and so do the employers mm, mm. they'd rather find the people they need locally uh, and you know, as we know there's a bit of a mismatch of people out there today who don't have a job mm. and would like a job and I would ask them to come forward and try to engage with these sectors engage with the support through our education system through social protection to maybe be able to upscale or reskill to maybe take up one of these jobs because these jobs 
first of all, are available to, to locals and people living in Ireland, first of all. Of course, uh, and there's no doubt there is a, a shortage, uh, particularly in construction. If anybody is trying to get any work done, they'll know that it's impossible to get anybody. And anybody working in construction will tell you they're flat out. You can't get uh, somebody uh, for love nor money. Uh, and I take it that that may change as a result uh, of bringing in more staff. And they're, uh, for the most part, uh, skilled and qualified uh, people. Uh, but uh, that may be the case uh, with some of uh, these other sectors. Uh, but there are a, a, a lot of workers like in meat processing and so on in horticulture uh, where there are unemployed people here. And that's one of the questions I, I think you were alluding to that people will be asking. Yeah, it's a fair question, Michael. First of all, you're right in relation to construction. There's a serious shortage of skills there, highly skilled. So we've made a lot of the, 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 the various titles and uh, positions in construction. They're off the ineligible list now and you can get a permit from them as well. Because um, there's two reasons. The construction is under pressure yeah. now, but we know with the commitment of money for the housing for all, the commitment of money in the National Development Plan, there's a lot of public money to be spent, taxpayers going to be spent on construction and capital projects along with the private sector. So this is going to be an area that will be under immense pressure for a long period of time. You mentioned other areas there like horticulture, like meat processing, mm. which are not the same skills required level uh, of construction, but there's still a difficulty in filling, filling those jobs. There's been a range of schemes ran through social protection, through education, yeah. through my own department, trying to attract um, Irish resident people into those jobs. The why, 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 sorry, Minister, why, why is that, do you think? Why do you think people don't want to do those jobs? Uh, and I know that there's a perception uh, that there'd be very low-paid jobs, uh, and it is hard work, and there's no doubt about that, but I, I think for the most part, uh, the permits uh, that you're making available uh, would apply to jobs that pay in excess of €27,000, up as high as €64,000. Yeah, look, at this sector, Michael, it's, it's hard to figure out. I mean, that's the question I keep asking uh, all involved in it. Uh, and I, I can see the evidence, and this is based on evidence. We don't allow permits uh, easily. We make sure the sector has gone to every length they can to try to source the, the people locally. Mm. There are different sectors, not everyone wants to work in them. We have put in place training programmes. There was Save the Harvest campaigns. There's a lot of different issues around fruit picking, vegetable picking, mushrooms, so on, trying, trying to attract locals in who are out mm. of work. Uh, and for, for whatever reason, that's not, not, not happening. Now, what we have said here, we expect those sectors to continue yeah. with all those efforts and to work with... But uh, do we cut the dole on people who won't do that work? Well, look, what we do, Michael, is um, there's a, there's a labour activation measures now being implemented across uh, all those involved in social protection, those who are on job seekers mm. and those who are on PUP and coming off PUP as well. And we go to every effort we can to engage with those people, to help them back into training, help them to get a place in the job, help them take these jobs. We uh, assist them with the training. We assist the employers to give them the training as well. So every effort is made for, to make it possible for, for local uh, people living in Ireland to take up these jobs. Um, for some reason, that that that, that, that they're still not being filled, mm. uh, and so I continue to pursue that. I can't answer why that is. Relatively. Yeah. Well, I can see comments coming in already to that effect. Uh, skilled and trained workers won't work for the minimum wage. Uh, we're talking in excess of the minimum wage for many of these jobs. Somebody else Absolutely. saying, and I, I, I give you an example. Michael. Yep. I, I mm. spent some time last week in Monaghan Mushrooms, uh, and they were able to show me what the what the staff have been paid. I could mm. not see it. And many staff there are, are, are earning over over fifteen, sixteen, seventeen euro an hour because mm. they've, they've they've been trained up and they're able to do the job. And others might might only be thirteen euro an hour. Yeah. But it's 
possible with the right training to make good money in these jobs uh, and, they, and they are good quality jobs in many cases. Well, when you take a HGV driver, I mean you're talking about earning 30, 40,000 euro a, a year driving a, a big truck uh, at a minimum and then there's lots of opportunities I think for additional earnings uh, apart from all of that uh, and uh, of I course, Michael, of course, it's a, a skill. Uh, but there's a lot of people who drive who could upskill uh, to have a, a license to allow for that. I mean, you could do that in maybe six months' time. Lots of young we people do. who aren't working. Yeah, and Michael, we do provide those courses, and we work with mm. the, the, the HGV sector to try to encourage people onto those courses. It's probably fair to say they are difficult jobs. Mm. They're not traditionally nine to five. There are travelling no. involved as well. But I would say that the pay has certainly improved over the last couple of years to make them more attractive. And I do think. And, and, and I've asked the sector to work with me and work with other various departments out to put in place uh, an enhanced programme of training to try to encourage more people into the sector because we predicted a number of years back that there would be a difficulty in the whole logistics sector and an um, opportunity to develop thousands of careers. And I'm, I'm committed to that. The permits is, is very often used uh, to deal with a, a, an emergency situation that's coming in front of us in, in, in the months ahead uh, in certain areas, but also to give us time then maybe to bring in some skills to train mm. up new people. But I'm determined that we try to fill as many as these jobs as we possibly can from those who are out of work today because it's a matter of joining the dots. But mm. there are certain careers, Michael, certain categories of work, we have to be fair about it, that, for, that, that, that they're, they're hard to fill and traditionally they've been difficult to fill. This is not a new problem because of no. COVID. But there is that basic question, do you want to work? I, I mean, you're talking about uh, 350 permits for hospitality managers. Now that stands out and seems very, very odd. Yeah, so there is an issue there. There's, there's about 10,000 vacancies in the hospitality sector at this moment in time, jobs that could be filled. Um, uh, and a number of them are in management positions. There's about 700 are being advertised across management positions. So what we've said is we'll allow permits for about 350 of those. Uh, because, again, we want that sector to keep working locally with all our local organisations and with the state services to try to fill the jobs locally. But we also recognise that there's an urgency and they are going mm. to have to source some people to come in from abroad. But, Michael, I think the key here is that we put more and more uh, uh, investment into our education, into our poor education and training system. Simon Harris, as you know, has, uh, has announced a lot of changes to their apprenticeship and training model. My own department works with SkillNet, Solace, the ETBs, right across the board to try to give people the, the upskilling they need and the qualifications mm. they need. The, we are, as you know, the Tarnish is, is bringing in a lot of changes to, to pay and conditions and sick pay, uh, time off work, all that. So we're doing everything we can to enhance uh, these jobs and make them more attractive. And and you're right, we we do need to work with people then who, who have found themselves out of work in their own career and might want to change over. Uh, and we can track, we know from, from analysing the people who've who have been out of work because mm. of COVID, they've gone back to different sectors or they've moved jobs. So you have to upskill and train up new people coming sure. into the system and that's what, we, that's what we will do. The other side of all of this, of course, is if the money is what people would consider to be relatively well paid uh, compared to other countries and if uh, these jobs can attract workers into this country because of the cost of living in this country and the cost of finding somewhere to live in this country. You may be earning €30,000 a year, but that won't uh, get you very much on the rental market. Yeah, so look, we are quite competitive in, in relation to the overall jobs package uh, and the rates of pay are quite high compared to a lot of countries in terms of our minimum wage and our sick pay and our entitlement. Mm, but it's your spending power. So, so, yeah, Michael, so, mm. so, and plus the protections in you in these jobs. But on top of that then, people have to, as you said, balance their own budget then and, and have to be able to live in this country. So that is something that is an issue and the cost of living is an issue. Many of these jobs are in parts of the country that there wouldn't be the same pressure than those costs, uh, but they are in, in, in certain areas. Naturally, 
uh, all our work is to try to bring those costs down. Housing is one of those big costs and the cost of rent. Again, many people that were given these permits to and coming in to help us will be part of the solution to help us build more houses to deal with that. Because, as you know, we have committed the money, taxpayer money, to fix this and to build these houses. It's just how quick can we build them. And if the more we build, the quicker we build of quality housing, we can take the pressure off that sector and that will help reduce the cost of living. But it's, it is fair to say it is an issue and that's why the minimum wage has gone up again this year. We're uh, recognising that the cost of living has also gone up as well. Okay. Uh, Minister, while you're with us ahead of uh, the weekend, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of people who'd like to know if uh, you'll march uh, with people in your hometown to save Navin Hospital. Yeah, the key thing here, Michael, first of all, you said it again, save Navin Hospital. Navin Hospital is not on the track. Navin Hospital is safe. It's busier than it ever was. There is this ongoing conversation that's been going on for the last 10 years or more around... Uh, how best to, to serve the people of me and what's the best medical treatment for them. I did tell you on this programme a month or two ago that there was no change in it. I was very clear on that. That was straight from the Minister. He has publicly clarified that since that. I've engaged him on three or four occasions on details of this as well. I, I have asked that all involved in running these campaigns, involved in, in, in supporting hospitals, that we sit down with the Minister, we sit down with the health authorities and we tease out exactly what they are proposing, what they're talking about. I've always said that there shouldn't be any changes in Navin Hospital unless it's an improvement to our health services and the capacities in the system. So I've always said, and the Minister has committed to me and to Thomas Bourne and to other colleagues as well, that we would that he would have a cross-party uh, meeting with all the active members of the area to tease through all this and discuss all this. And then, to me, it's appropriate that we then see, in conjunction with our health services, what's best uh, for the people of me in Navin Hospital. But Navin Hospital is safe. And, and I've said before, um, sometimes these campaigns that give the impression that the hospital is closing or something is closing is not good for our hospital. And so I think it's important we sit down with the Minister, we tease all this through and we get all the clarifications that we need. He has put them on the door record. The Minister has told anybody who had notions of making changes not to do it uh, because as far as he's concerned, as Health Minister, um, anybody that wants to change anything with our hospital have to go through him, have to make the case to him and prove that it's the right thing to do for a hospital I've always had, held, held that position and that's why we'll continue to work on it in supporting Abbott Hospital. It's very important that we do that. Okay, will you walk alongside your neighbours to show that support? I'm involved with my neighbours every day of the week, Michael. I've said to you before... Will you join uh, the March, Minister? My, Michael, to be clear on this, uh, I have a view in relation to... Oh, I know, but I'm just asking you if, you'll be, if people yeah, will meet yeah. you on the March. The March this week is, is in my view, premature. So, uh, you, so, you, so you won't be attending? It's the match, if you read what the poster says, it says save Navin Hospital. Yeah, I, I know. That with you, Michael. That, to me, affects the numbers going to Navin Hospital. So you I'm won't be attending? I'm not happy with that approach. I won't be supporting it because I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not happy with that approach. I had asked very clearly at the Save Hospital campaign that we sit down with the Minister first to, to assess is there a threat to any part of the services, is there an opportunity to enhance the services, and that, to me, was the first important step rather than running off uh, an innuendo which has okay. now happened and I meet people every day of the week who are asking me now Damien is the hospital closing it is not closing Navin Hospital is a top class medical asset here locally okay. and nationally and it's important that we keep at that level as well Minister thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning uh, that is uh, the Minister of State for Business Employment and Retail Fine TD for Midwest Damien English Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you know, Seamus Ludlow was a forestry worker who was shot dead on his way home from the Lisdu Arms on uh, the 2nd of May 1976. He'd been out for a few pints and took a lift uh, from what turned out to be some paramilitaries who'd crossed uh, the border from uh, the north and... 
shot Seamus uh, in what is uh, believed to, to have been a case of collusion between the paramilitaries and the British government. Uh, Seamus Ludlow's uh, death is one uh, that uh, has been failed to, to have been investigated properly and uh, something that his family has campaigned for ever since for justice for Seamus. Unfortunately, we learned this morning that Seamus Ludlow's brother, Kevin Ludlow, passed away. Kevin was 85 years of age and uh, he spent most of uh, the last 45 years campaigning for justice for his brother, Seamus. Uh, he didn't uh, meet with uh, John Boucher, who's uh, currently investigating uh, the killing, uh, but he, he did make a, a recording uh, and he sent that on to Mr. Boucher and uh, that will be looked at by the Canova team as uh, they now uh, carry out their own independent investigation. Uh, last time I, I spoke uh, to Kevin was in April of uh, this year, coming up uh, to the 45th anniversary of Seamus's killing. I know what it's like. I met someone in Leinster House and I know what, what they were like to talk to. Mm. I never forget it. It's just, oh, I, I, I don't want to say it on, on, on the radio. Mm-hmm. Probably as well not to Kevin. No, I definitely not. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it's 45 years now this 45 weekend. 45 years now. It's yeah. Sunday evening yeah. at quarter past five. Yeah. I identified. And then the big was, big job was tell her mummy. Oh, God. Yeah. What did your mother say? Oh, sure. Seamus was a whole pet. And she was 80, 81 or something at that time, or 80. And, and she wasn't in great health. But it was hard as hell on her. But, so we had to. Mm. Uh, anyhow, How long after did your mother live, Kevin? About two years, I think. Yeah, yeah. two years. And two, two broken hearted years, I'd say. Two broken hearted years, yeah, yes. Yeah. He came home on, on a Saturday night, he had a few pints now. And, and he got up and he said to me, I'll come for and maybe sing a song for him before he go to bed. Mm. That's just how familiar he was now. And like he, he wasn't married. Uh, he never had a girlfriend. Mm. And think about the hair and said he was talking to his daughter. <laughs> just show you the word they were talking about. But they knew. <laughs> yeah, he said he was talking to his daughter. <laughs> he said he couldn't be talking to his daughter. And, and, and when he wasn't married. Yeah, yeah. And then he says he was talking to me to his niece so you couldn't be talking to his niece because there's, there's no niece walking on the kids only Jimmy Brennan and myself mm. oh just I met him in Cavan and it just shows you what what did you what did you mm. absolutely think that he was going to think that I was going to swallow that here you know the thought coming the late Kevin Ludlow, who passed away this morning, uh, he was 85 years of age and spent the last 45 years campaigning for justice for his late brother, Seamus Ludlow. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, we were asking at, uh, at the beginning of uh, the programme uh, today how the public health advice makes sense. When you've got all of these rising numbers and uh, everything seems to be going back to normal, you can go... Uh, to pubs and clubs and God knows where else uh, and you'd wonder why they didn't hold off for a few weeks more before reopening on that scale. Uh, this is what the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Hulan, had to say about that last night. An option that we could have considered was to simply as we're kick the can a few weeks down the road and see how things emerge but hand on heart we didn't feel that things would be improved substantially such that if and I would just take nightclubs as just an example of the kinds of measures that were to be considered in most of society being open, of course, but nightclubs, an increase in 
activity in outdoor and indoor settings and so on with the remaining measures. But if we just take nightclubs as the example, we could say, you know, we can't open nightclubs now and let's wait for three or four more weeks. It's hard to see that the conditions would be better such that you could open nightclubs without a dependence on the coast. We thought it was better for us to say, look, if we, if we can recommend a strict adherence with the COVID pass, if we have strict observation and as much as is reasonably possible uh, of behaviours uh, uh, around uh, that particular sector, and look, there's a, there's a reality around the extent to which people can effectively practice um, um, public health measures in a nightclub situation. But if people factor that then into their personal behaviour, like we've been saying earlier, that if, like, if you're going to go nightclubbing, maybe you don't go nightclubbing every night of the week, you, and, and if you're planning to visit vulnerable people in your family, you don't do that after the day, in, in the days after you've been at a nightclub, and you factor all that into your personal uh, uh, behaviour, we thought that was a, that was a more uh, appropriate way of, of, of considering how best to advise people to deal with um, management of risk, not just at the individual level, but at the sector level, in the context of a, of a society which in effect is, is now fully open. All right, that's uh, Dr. Tony Hulhan. We'll hear more from that press briefing later in the programme as well. Now, let's uh, return uh, to the weather, which, uh, as you've been hearing and undoubtedly didn't need to be told, uh, sees a a lot of rain continuing through the day after the very heavy rain last night. Let's uh, go to Navin. Independent Councillor Alan Laws was out in the rain last night. Now, very good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning to tell us about a number of people who you met who, unlike you, I suppose, uh, didn't have any choice but to be out in the rain. Yeah, uh, Michael, thanks um, for the invite onto the show. Um, yeah, I met uh, five people when I was out uh, doing outreach last night in Navin. And, uh, I mean, it was atrocious weather, it really was. And uh, we were trying to cater for them. And uh, we were able to bring them sleeping bags. We were able to bring them some food uh, and, and other other essentials as such but I mean what we really need to be doing at this stage I met one 18 year old girl Michael um, who's only 18 I mean I know I consider her an adult at 18 I'd still consider her a child and I'd made a representation earlier in the day to Mead County Cowboys and given the ladies uh, details and basically they came back to me and again we're stuck with this issue of location again the the, the lady in question is originally from Dublin uh, she's with her you know, boyfriend in, in, in Navin and because she's from Dublin Mead County Council refused to deal with her now we're leaving an 18 year old out in the street and just I, you know, over the last few weeks in, in Navin, uh, I've had three homeless people beaten. One girl severely beaten. Uh, one man was just lying in, in, in uh, Blackwater Park, and, and youths came over to start kicking him in the face, broke his nose. Another, another young man who has mental health difficulties was attacked up around Mullaboy, and a young lady was beaten severely, um, causing serious injuries to herself. Now. You know, one of these mornings you invite me on, Michael. I mean, I walked away from that 18-year-old girl. I did as much as I can for her. We have two issues going on here. Um, you know, we have the issue of location. If anything happens to that girl tonight, Michael, as I said to you before, we could be on this programme talking about something really different. Of course, that yeah. girl could come to harm. Sleeping on the street is yeah. dangerous. And I think any institution to walk out away from an 18-year-old and not try to help is, is in my Just mind. Just explain it to me, though, Alan, because... Um 
you know, there's questions going around in my head. Uh, you said she's from Dublin, yeah. and, that, and that's why they wouldn't deal with her. Has she got an address in Dublin, or, or uh, you know, how, yeah, how do you come to the conclusion that she's from I, Dublin? Again, I don't, I don't know her full background. Yeah, yeah, and I remember yeah, yeah. when me county council contacted herself mm, before over yeah. similar issues. I do know that they have to do a proper assessment, but yeah, I mean, mm. I give all the information I had about this young lady, like a PPS number, or telephone yeah. number, and, and as much as I knew. Now, if she's decided to leave Dublin and sleep homeless, we can only imagine what she's had to leave. And like, well, she's ho- she's homeless. In Navin, yeah. you know, and you presume that she doesn't have an address in yeah. Dublin, or else she'd be in Dublin living in uh, yeah. that well, place. That, she probably, yeah, yeah. Maybe she doesn't have a safe address in Dublin, yeah. which is probably mm. more than likely yeah. the issue. Mm. But again, I go back to what what the um, Minister for Housing said, Daryl O'Brien, before last Christmas. Uh, we were encountered in this all the time. If you're a homeless person in Tipperary, just say, for example, Michael, and there's probably no soup kitchens on the street, there's very little support from people around there. So a lot of the time, um, homeless people might, might go to Dublin because you have like good groups like the Muslim Sisters of Air providing hot meals to homeless people on the, outside the GPO every week. And you have different other different groups doing the same thing. And there's charities going out there engaging with people. So there's lots of services available to you. And maybe that's why they turned up. But we don't know. This girl might have fled Dublin for her own sake. But Darrell O'Brien, when them instances were coming up and Dublin City Council were refusing to deal with these people, I think Darrell O'Brien made that statement. I think he's tracked it back to the Irish Times that location would no longer be an issue. If we find someone in distress, the vulnerable person on the street, regardless of where it is, we'll deal with it. Now, yeah. mm. I don't know who, you know, I mean, who's in charge here? I presume the housing minister's in charge here. So that's, that's well, one in the first instance, rule of regulation that's yeah. leaving an 18 year old on the street, Michael, and I just can't live yeah. with that. Like. Well, that, that's the big picture, I suppose, in terms of uh, the policies and procedures, but the uh, immediate responsibility would lie with Mead County Council. We make comments with them, obviously. Uh, Alan and ask uh, for the response and hopefully something can be done for that young girl this evening. Well, another man, another man mm-hmm. for example now, he he, he um, was walking on the streets of Dublin again I engaged with him, I sent these details into me, yeah. County Council, now it was late, it was after hours yeah. and that's another problem, yeah. we don't have a service after hours, the man rang me again and he said Alan I'm saturated, my clothes is ringing, can you not find me emergency accommodation now and I had to apologise to him because I've no emergency number to ring for that man yeah. I've nothing to, I've nothing, no way I can help him. I helped him as best I could with sleeping bags and if he needed any food, he was very honest with me. Mm. He said, no, I, I eat already. I need a roof, Alan. Yeah, you wouldn't put a cat out in that weather yeah. last night. I mean, and it was like, torrential rain. It really was an awful night. Yeah. Absolutely, and again, mm-hmm. we have we have rules around weather mm-hmm. warnings when we, we yeah. give help, but I mean, it doesn't seem to be working. I've raised these issues before umpteen times with the council, and a lot of the times, some of the other people I met on the streets last mm-hmm. night have met them many times before because they're, they're people suffering with addictions, and because we don't have a wet hostel in County Mead, we put some of these people who are suffering from addictions, let's face it, Michael, it's an illness, we put them in a and b and with the best efforts of the B&B owners and their staff, mm. sometimes it doesn't work out because of the person's addiction. Yeah. So what happens and that's then? why they want to assess people so that there aren't yeah. problems, and you can understand yeah, that. I mean, but you need... When do you assess them? You don't, you don't throw your hands up in the air and say there's nothing we can do and leave children yeah. out in the street. Of course. But when mm. they assess them, Michael, and they find they do have an addiction, we don't have an appropriate facility to deal with them. Mm. That's why I'm seeing the same faces on the street over and over again. Yeah. Because at some stage, their illness lets them down. The untrained staff in the B&B can't cope. 
and here we are again I'm seeing the same face on the street tonight so okay. look it's ongoing I'd like Mead County Council to look at their, their, their after hours policy again again Michael we've been talking about this a few times on your yeah. show and thanks very much for inviting you on I hope that I'm never coming on your show to tell you mm. that the person I couldn't get help for last night ended up in the Boyne River or something well, it's very upsetting but it could be an awful lot worse than that uh, and we'll ask Mead County Council to respond specifically to the problems that you witnessed last night, uh, especially uh, in relation to that 18-year-old woman or girl, as you say, uh, and if something can be done for her this evening and the four men that you met. uh, And uh, maybe uh, we can check in with you tomorrow, Alan. That's brilliant. Thanks very much for being here on the show, Michael, this morning. Okay, thank you indeed. Now, thanks as well to Mairead in Drogheda, who says, I don't always agree with you, Michael, but uh, I do in relation to what you said about putting your trust in the health advice from the experts and being somewhat perplexed at what's happening now. Uh, Mairead says, I am too. The figures speak for themselves. Uh, The number of deaths, uh, the number in hospitals, and we know that the hospitals cannot cope. So why is it a free-for-all at the moment? Should there not be a rollback and some sort of restrictions in place? I certainly don't think the nightclub should be open. It's very worrying, and I find the actions of the government stroke Neffet at this moment very confusing. Uh, Another call comes to us uh, from Liz, who says, I've a lot of friends with young children. They were planning to let them go trick-or-treating as uh, they missed out on it last year but you have to wonder should children be calling to doors as they appear to be super spreaders at the moment thank you for that as well uh, Sheila in Dundalk thinks uh, that the only way we're going to get out of this is through the pre- the, the power of prayer uh, and she says you shouldn't underestimate that uh, I'm not sure if uh, have any better suggestions this morning, Sheila, but thanks uh, for that. Uh, Tommy Indramin says, I'm listening to Damien English talking about bringing in more workers, but we have a huge housing problem and I wonder where all these workers coming from abroad are going to live. That's a, an interesting question, uh, I think, uh, for the minister, let alone afford it. Uh, Martin in Mead says, listening... Uh, to the COVID case numbers and you'd have to wonder is it wise to stage a big protest in Navin this weekend? All it might do is place further pressure on our hospitals if there is an outbreak. Another interesting point uh, thanks uh, for that Martin Uh, and call then from Michael who has been in touch with us to say it's terrible that Damien English won't go out and rally with uh, the people to ensure that Navin Hospital is not downgraded. He warns uh, that the people of Meath will remember, he should be warned that the uh, Michael warns that the people of Meath will remember this come election time. Thank you Michael uh, for your call to the programme this morning. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, the world will be focused on climate change uh, over the next couple of weeks as world leaders will meet uh, for the uh, COP26 uh, climate change conference, the United Nations uh, conference on climate change, uh, which hopes to accelerate the Paris Agreement uh, targets. And let's uh, talk to Darren O'Rourke, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on the environment and climate. Uh, Very good morning to you, Darren O'Rourke, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, There's a a huge expectation, it seems, across Europe that there'll be a a lot of talk and little in the way of action uh, that promises won't be met once again. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're... you're, you're, I, I sense you're... Your, your skepticism, uh, Michael, and and I would share that concern. Um, I think on the one hand, you have very clear science, and the science is increasingly powerful and predictive and uh, firm. Um, there was a question over it in the past, but the models have, uh, you know, are are increasingly robust. So, so the evidence is there. 
about the the you know the, the the direction of travel and I think there's a, a very clear indication um, on what needs to, to change and you know that's well rehearsed in terms of the uh, uh, undoing of the, the many of the measures of the industrial revolution the move away from fossil fuels the electrification of transport the mm. um, compact growth um, the different uh, approach to industry um, the real question and, and the, the COP26 this big uh, climate conference that's happening in Glasgow brings all the global leaders together um, there, there is an argument that you know it's, it's a, a, a lot of show if you like um, uh, look, there were, in my opinion there will be far more serious players there um, uh, some more than others uh, you've already heard in terms of, of some of the, the countries like Australia for example um, that are coming with a particular agenda other countries are making very strong arguments uh, for for delaying um, action, some countries aren't attending at all, mm. um, and that really does raise the question. Of and, and, and that's a, a point that I think people probably uh, make fairly in that they're saying, "Why should I be paying an extra euro for a bag of coal here?" Uh, if uh, all of these problems have little or nothing to do with Ireland, given the size of the country, when you compare it to the problems coming out of places like China and India. Yeah, and, and, and look, that is that is an argument that's often made. I suppose what we can say on the on the flip side of that is, if everybody takes that approach, well, then we're we're, we're doomed to failure here. If everybody says, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to move until till everybody moves, well, then um, we're left in a state of paralysis. And, and, and don't forget, like we're. Um, you know, we're having our own conversations in Ireland. Mm. I would say, you know, they're, they're not straightforward. They're, they're very difficult uh, uh, conversations because the, the future is uncertain for many sectors. I think we do. We need to do a far better job of uh, understanding the scale of the challenge and mapping out, you know, the opportunities that is there for sectors because there are opportunities. But we can't have a. Uh, um, I think you know it's it's really important that there is leadership shown in relation to it and um, the, the contradictions within it uh, at a European level for example mm. the, the likes of the Mercosur deal you hear from the agriculture sector here and they're maybe pointing towards Argentina or Brazil and saying you know we're, we're being asked to, to cut our herd here and we're going to be importing uh, less sustainable beef from other parts of the world so so I, I think governments um need to lead in relation to this stuff but they also need to get get very serious um i think you know one of the biggest problems is that that there isn't an appreciation of the scale of the challenge um, and there isn't a willingness to, to 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 shift from the the current world order if you like it's clear that we need uh, a new economic model we need far greater community engagement community participation bottom-up approaches in terms of ownership of of wind energy ownership of solar energy mm. uh, contributing to the national grid um, new types of economies for for rural and urban communities and really uh, i feel like uh, the irish government and internationally governments are constrained by uh, the old way of doing things. So they're waiting for private corporations to take a lead in relation to this, and, and they won't do that because... And are they being unrealistic, unrealistic in their aspirations? I, I mean, I don't think anybody 
really understands the idea of retrofitting every house in the country at a cost of 50, 60,000 euro. Uh, and if you're not going to do that, and then why are you putting up the cost of oil and coal and so on? Because uh, really people are just going to end up paying more for their fuel. And I know that you talk about just transition and so on. But are there not alternative realistic options where you take it one realistic step after another, whereby, for example, instead of getting rid of gas, you allow gas to continue for some time until such time that hydrogen can replace gas through the boilers that exist without having to go to all of that cost of retrofitting houses? Look, and, and I think, I think, being honest, Michael, I think everything needs to be on the table in relation to this. Um, we, we, you know, we have to be conscious of of the of creating incentives and perverse incentives. You know, we need to create an incentive to get to, to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. But, but where is the incentive increasing the cost of diesel, for example? If you're driving a ten-year-old diesel car, uh, you're hardly going to go out and buy a new electric car. You're just going to pay more for diesel. Absolutely, and, and and that's the that's that's consistently been our argument against the increases in the carbon tax because it just ends up being punitive, and what that serves to do is it turns people against this whole climate agenda, and they're frustrated frustrated with it. So 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 I think like a, a couple of things, Michael. First of all, the scale of the investment being made by governments is a fraction of what is needed, and that's one of the, the supposed to be one of the key focuses of of, of this COP twenty six conference. So, for example, you know we're raising a carbon carbon tax in Ireland. It's punitive, as, as I have said, but also it, it actually contributes a fraction of what is needed towards. So, so, so the example of retrofitting, um, it, 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 the carbon tax will contribute 200 million towards retrofitting next year. They won't be able to spend that money in the first instance because they haven't got the workers. But second of all, it is about one tenth of what is needed based on the carbon budgets that have been have been outlined during the week. So, so that to me says that actually, you know, none of this is credible or real, that the, that, that the you know, national government in Ireland and internationally governments need to weed, wake up in relation to it. So what's what's needed is a new economic model that, that you know, that works for local communities. But bigger than that, it's, 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 you know, massive state investment in relation to this. So that probably means, you know, state borrowing into the decades ahead to, to tackle this in a real way. Because this idea of, you know, levying attacks on ordinary workers and families who don't have alternatives, and then gently kind of nudging the private sector towards alternative technologies. It hasn't a hope in hell, Michael, in my own opinion, of, of being successful. And I think, you know, governments need to wake up to that fact. Okay. While you're with us, uh, I'd like to ask you about uh, the rally on Saturday. Minister Damien English telling us uh, that he, he won't be uh, attending uh, the rally to save Navin Hospital. I, I gather you will, will you? Uh, definitely, definitely, Michael. It's 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 priority number one. Um, the, the Sinn Féin Ardesh is actually on on the same day, but I wouldn't miss Navin for the world because I I think you know it is uh, absolutely clear what's on the agenda. Um, I have to say I thought when when Stephen Donnelly intervened that uh, there was going to be a, a, a sophisticated political manoeuvre on behalf of the government of the HSC or whatever. It, it, actually, it was the exact opposite. Um, you, I know you've, you've spoken to Johnny Gork and Pat O'Bean in the meantime, but like we heard very clearly what the intention is. They're going to bring elected representatives in from the from the county and explain to us why the A&E and ICU have to close. I, I 
I, I, I absolutely uh, disagree with that position. I think it's essential that the A&E and ICU are supported and actually that the capacity at Navin Hospital is increased. That's the only logical thing to do in the context of the challenges on our health service that we've seen at the minute and that we've seen in recent years. It's, it, it capacity needs to be increased. And the thing that, that's, that uh, will achieve that is thousands of people on the streets in Navan at one o'clock on, on Saturday. And I really would encourage people... Um, if we lose this, uh, it is will be uh, such a tremendous loss to the county. Um, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, people fully appreciate the, the impact that it would have in terms of of where we're, we're going as a county and as a region. Um, the, you know, in terms of the impact in, on on the lives of people, on the healthcare for mm. people, in terms of the impact on industry and is, economic growth and everything else. Is it wise though at this time? Uh, somebody asking us earlier on, uh, could this uh, event uh, turn out to be a COVID super spreader? Look, it's it's uh, we, we've had advice, and I understand the organisers have had advice in terms of of uh, public health and also in terms of the, its compliance with the with the regulations. Um, you know, it's an outdoor event, mm. uh, um, and, and, and people will you know will will be wise. You know, I'll be wearing a mask. I'm sure uh, uh, the vast majority of people. I would encourage everybody to to, to wear their masks and, and keep socially distanced, and, and that will surely fill the fill the streets of Navan and send a very clear message to, to people. So I really would, you know, encourage people to come out in their in their numbers to wear their their club colours, to bring their their flags and banners, uh, and and you know have a, a, a pageant feel about it and send the clearest message uh, possible to government that you know hands off our hospital. Okay, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Sinn Fein TD for me the East to uh, Darren O'Rourke, who is his party's spokesperson on the environment. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Well, the problem with uh, the tickets for the Ireland-Portugal match or tickets for events in the Aviva Stadium has to do with uh, the law because the law is intended to outlaw ticket touting uh, and it makes it an offence to sell on tickets for a designated event, uh, events. Uh, In other words, the law applies if the organisers of an event apply to have it designated or they apply for a venue uh, to be designated uh, in terms of uh, this law and Dermot Jewell is the policy and council advisor with the Consumer Association of Ireland and I'm sure Dermot you wouldn't say I hate to say I told you so but I told you so so we'll say it for you because you said when this law was being introduced that this was exactly the kind of problem that you were concerned might happen. Yeah, good morning to you. It's so frustrating to see it happen. It's not that we wanted it to happen, but that the, the idea of designation, I can understand the, the degree of logic behind it, but that said, we are, we've even gone out today saying, would it not have been better? Would it still perhaps not be better to just change? I know it's, I know it's a new regulation. I know it's a new bill, um, a new act, but why not change it to say, look, you are deemed to be designated until you opt out. And that way, there'd be no confusion whatsoever, and there would not have been. Mm. Um, because this law is, is still, in fairness, meant only for venues that have a seating capacity of over 1,000. So small venues are okay. They, they're not worried. They're, they're able to manage. Um, and all of the, the, the ticket house can work to their heart's content, um, unfortunately, still in that area. But, um, look, it, it, it's... 
it's it's been very frustrating and it's been very confusing. Even up to now, it's still confusing because yeah. into, into next year there are, I, I, there are a lot of gigs that if you like that and, and events that are rescheduled and nobody's entirely sure that they fall within the designation. Do they fall outside of it? And it's still being um, tickets are still being sold in in odd areas for big money. And tell me why anybody would want to opt out uh, other than our old mates in Viagogo. Well, it's a very good point, you see, because Viagogo and, and similar sites to them, they make, they will always be the first to say, look, we don't set the price for the tickets. No, they don't. But they're facilitating greedy sods out there who want to buy tickets and sell them on at massively inflated prices. Um, and, and the sites, they make their money from both. They charge a percentage off the seller and they charge a percentage mm. off the buyer. So whatever the price is set, they're sitting there very happily saying, go ahead, do what you want. We're not, we're not policing you. And that's the whole point of the bill. It was there to stop this rip-off. And it's amazing, uh, the coincidence uh, that uh, thousands of tickets end up on Viagogo, uh, where people who wanted to go to the game couldn't get tickets. Oh, it's shocking. And, and um, mm. I, I know I looked at the site, maybe I'm sure you probably did yourself just before mm. I came on. And, uh, you know, they're, they're now sold out on site or else they just closed down that particular avenue that was open to them. But the pr- frustration of it was the tickets were going up beyond 500 euro. Mm. Um, and these started um, be- between 15 and 120. And that's it. as I say again, that's exactly why the bill was brought in. Mm. And it's frustrating for everybody. I must say now, including the department who thought they had it right but you know there were, there were flags went up day one when oh, it's not really a great idea to put in that designation element mm. and because even some of the big ones they just never thought to do it it's, mm. you know, it's, it's just the way it is but we're in we're not we're in a we're in a better place it needs to improve um, and there's, there's there are efforts being made I suppose is that, that the most we can expect just at the minute but I still think it's time to push to to avoid anybody else coming in and finding a loophole around it and say, look, why not change it around? Assume everybody's designated unless they, they want to go outside of it. And is it as simple as that, uh, do you think, that they just didn't think uh, of applying for the designation? Yeah, they, it, it has been, because right. I can, I'm, I'm assuming they're fairly busy. I, I can imagine they're up to their eyes. They assumed the law was put in that just put a ban on things. But what I don't get, um, because it was pointed out that letters were sent to everybody explaining you need to register yourself as a designated venue. I don't understand how that mm. was missed by so many, and particularly by such very, very large organisations, because that's their business. Yeah. So somebody fell down badly. And they're very removed, I would imagine, from how uh, the people they serve feel about this thing, because yeah. not only are they asked to pay extortion prices uh, at times, uh, but they can't afford those prices and can't go to the game in this circumstance. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I mean, the, the point was well made about this earlier on, and it, it's it's the next one that's going to have to be watched, which is, well, you know, it, there was a gap there. The gap has been used. It's been well facilitated. People have paid a small fortune for tickets. And how could you ever dream of enforcing um, trying to stop those people coming in? You can't. They mm. paid their money, um, to no matter to whom they paid it. But they, you know, did they break the law? Not, not as far as they were concerned, because they couldn't get the ticket from the venue, because the venue didn't, didn't hold its, its side up. And are they apologetic? Not really. Mm. Um, and it's not good enough. Mm. Yeah, no, it really isn't, uh, because uh, 
ordinary fans are, are denied the opportunity to go or if they do go uh, somebody is profiteering greatly uh, uh, on their back uh, what should happen next uh, I mean uh, I don't think this will happen at uh, the Aviva again as I understand it because uh, they've applied for the Aviva to be designated so I take it all events at Aviva uh, will uh, come under the law and you won't be able to sell on uh, at uh, more than face value uh, but what, what should happen should everybody be designated as you said at the outset uh, unless you opt out or something I, I think it would help, uh, uh, certainly a consideration of it, and we will write to the Minister and see if that's a, po- a possibility. I know that there will be groans, which is, oh dear Lord, we've just done this, but it, it's it's worth getting it right. And a lot of people didn't, I, I didn't see that until the day, it was it was the week it was coming into force, and I don't understand the designation, why? So, look, that, that's what needs to happen next, um, and, be, and there are still confusions out there. I mean, that there are other big venues, three arena being being one of the major ones, but I, I'm a little bit confused even myself as to why Brian Adams concert tickets are on sale on Viagogo today. Um, I don't get it. That's not from May 2022 unless it's a rescheduled concert, but it doesn't say that anywhere. Mm, right. Yeah, well, I don't know. Uh, it's... Uh very, very questionable. Uh, it's very questionable that places like Viagogo operate anyway. Uh, Agreed. Be- because of, of uh, the huge amounts that people are asked for. And it's very questionable that laws are brought in to combat uh, what they do uh, and they fall flat on their face. And that seems to be the case. You're right. You're right, Michael. Okay. Um, if there's a gap, they see it and they go right through it. All right, Dermot. Thank you indeed, as always. Okay, thank you. All That's uh, Dermot Jewell, Policy and Council Advisor with uh, the Consumers Association of Ireland. Now, uh, let's uh, go back uh, to some more of uh, your comments. A lot of people in touch with us today. And thanks to everybody who's been in touch. Uh, try and come to uh, as many comments as we can on uh, the programme today. Sean wanting to know where Minister English plans on housing all of the workers he's calling on to come over here and work. There isn't adequate housing as it stands. Declan says he's a HGV driver and had to undergo CPC training over a five-year period uh, in order to drive a a truck. Uh, Will that rule apply to any new workers coming into the country to work in the industry? I take it the same rules will apply to all, Declan. Uh, Mary wants to know if anyone has any insight into how contagious the Delta variant is. She says she was in a GP's surgery yesterday and she noticed some of the staff there were wearing full medical scrubs in the waiting room, which she found a little scary. She was worried about it. She says she's been working on the assumption that sanitising your hands and wearing masks was enough to keep you safe when you're out and about. Thanks, uh, Mary, for that. I, I think you're probably safer outdoors than indoors and you certainly should be keeping your distance with or without a mask, as uh, the case may be. And I think two metres is the advice. Ian and Trim says, given the rise in COVID cases again, it probably is inevitable that we will all be offered boosted vaccines, but they should be doing it sooner rather than later. And it should be an absolute priority for healthcare workers. If the cases keep rising, we cannot just continue as normal because the hospitals won't be able to cope. Thank you indeed uh, for your call to the programme as well, Ian. Now, there is, of course, a, a lot of concern, as Dr Duffy said, not just here, but... Uh, right across Europe and beyond. They're going into lockdown in Russia. They're seeing uh, cases explode in certain European countries. Uh, And indeed, uh, it's uh, something uh, that is of particular concern as we go into the winter months, uh, as uh, the World Health Organization has been explaining. Certainly in the Northern Hemisphere is heading into another winter. 
uh, and just need to be a little concerned that that uptick across Europe as we enter the late, late deep autumn and as societies are opening up, we're seeing those numbers rise. And in a number of countries, we're already seeing the health system begin to come under pressure. We're seeing the number of available ICU beds decreasing. Uh, and we don't want to sleepwalk our way to where we were last year. Um, remember over the Christmas and the New Year period last year, you know, and that, a lot of that was driven by the arrival of the Delta variant and other things. But we don't know what the dynamics will be in two months' time or three months' time. But we are heading into the holiday period. We're heading into the period of huge movements of people across countries, families gathering together, all of that. And all of that's great. But we're just going to have to be a little cautious, a little careful. And really, if you were offered vaccine, it is the single most effective intervention we have right now. It provides huge protection against serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And it provides significant protection against you actually becoming infected again, although it's not perfect in that. So it's really important, especially in Europe, for example, now that has this increase where we have wide availability of the vaccine. That's Dr. Mike Ryan of the World Health Organization suggesting that you get vaccinated so that you don't end up sick, so that you don't end up in hospital, so that you don't die. Um, we're seeing three, four, five deaths a day on average. We've reported somewhere between 60 and 70 new deaths notified last week and this week. Um, and I think I said 164 in September and rising and 116 in October and rising. Um, so, so they're very significant mortality figures. When you look at mortality per month over the course of the pandemic, they are not insignificant. Um, and um, I suppose it... Very much so. Exactly. So that so when we come back in December and January and we're looking back to the total mortality for September and October, those numbers will be significantly higher, unfortunately. Unfortunately, indeed. That's uh, the Deputy CMO, Dr. Ronan Lynn. Michael Reed on LMFM. Young women in particular have been warned for years to watch their drinks when they're out in case the drinks are spiked and they end up drugged and then taken advantage of. I don't know if you've seen uh, the photograph on social media in recent days of a young woman's bruised arm. She was out in a nightclub and felt disorientated. Now, she ended up being taken home by her friends and uh, was well but she woke up the next morning with this bruise on her arm wondering if it was caused by a needle prick. Uh, Let's uh, talk to Sorla Brennan who's uh, the Vice President uh, for Welfare with uh, the Union of Students in Ireland and a very good morning to you Sorla thanks uh, for joining us once again. This is a particularly worrying development isn't it Uh, because uh, it's something uh, that they've uh, been witnessing in the UK. I'm reading in the newspapers uh, this morning Uh, The Irish Times reporting that in Nottingham alone there have been 12 such reports uh, of this type of spiking or injecting people with drugs uh, so that they could be taken advantage of in crowded nightclubs. Yeah, it's it's a really, really worrying trend we're starting to see. Um, Obviously, there has always been drink spiking happening and it has always been a concern and a fear for people kind of going around nights out and stuff and there would have been safety messaging surrounding it but the fact that it's now escalated to this trend that's beginning to grow of potentially needles being involved is incredibly worrying and the first case i would have seen would would have been the one you mentioned through twitter which was in the uk and i've seen a number of tweets since in the uk of people with concern 
um, and it was concerning to see and uh, I, part of me had hoped like it wouldn't something that we saw reflected within Ireland um, but as we now know there's currently one case under investigation by the Gardaí of a woman who potentially may have been a victim to this um, needle spiking. Mm. And isn't it odd to think uh, that somebody could inject you and that you may not even notice that you're being drugged? Yeah, it, it, it's terrible. Um, and it, it really, really shows the kind of attitudes people can have towards kind of consent and consent culture within Ireland that some people, like like primarily the perpetrators of these of these acts, would think that this is an acceptable behaviour to partake mm. in. Yeah, it's hard to think how anybody would think of going out and spiking somebody's drink. And I suppose uh, there's uh, ways of protecting yourself from that by watching your drink at all times or not drinking it if you haven't been watching it. Uh, but uh, if you can't feel a needle going into you, uh, it's incredible to think that somebody uh, would uh, fall victim to that or the idea that somebody would bring a syringe with them into a nightclub uh, with such bad intent. Absolutely. Um, the the intent alone of putting something in somebody's drink is horrendous. Um, but there is an undeniable, like, and I'm in no way minimalizing the extent of other spiking, but the intent of going out with the intent of injecting and drugging someone that way is just so incredibly malicious. And is it some sort of joke, and I ask you that honestly, or is the idea to seduce somebody and sexually assault them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's right. entirely it's entirely power play. The, 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 mo- the, the most common purpose behind spiking would be with the intention of rendering them unable to kind of look after themselves and then Mm. from their sexual assault and take advantage of that person. Okay, so we're talking about two crimes, uh, at least at this stage, and then there's uh, possibly uh, another crime because syringes are are very dangerous uh, items at at times and can carry diseases, HIV or hepatitis, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That is obviously a concern. What I will note is when the syringes, when the syringes and that whole area first hit the media, there was stories going around regarding HIV diagnoses and stuff. And it really is important to note that HIV cannot be detected within the first week of being injected. So while it is a fear, it is also important that it shouldn't be used to scaremonger or to villainize people living with HIV. Um, most people with HIV are able to live completely undetected and completely treatable. Um, when you're receiving treatment, HIV can't be transferred to another person. It's completely symptomless. Um, and it's really, really important that we're not villainizing that community as a result of this. OK, but uh, no doubt uh, there's uh, concern. Uh, how much concern is there uh, amongst students uh, and particularly amongst female students? There is an absolute culture of fear right now. Um, anecdotally, nearly every student I speak to is terrified. Um, it, it's obviously before the injections kind of took the mainstream, there was always a fear and there was always that concern of personal safety and stuff. Now it has reached another level where so many people are just genuinely terrified to go out and like just live their lives. Everybody I speak to has either been spiked or knows somebody has been spiked. It's an incredibly, incredibly subject of close subjects to a lot of people's hearts. Really? I know a number of people who work in student unions who would work in student accommodation and stuff who are getting multiple 
cases in in one weekend. It's it's really really appalling. Really. Yeah. Everybody you know has been spiked. Uh, Either has been spiked or knows somebody else that has been spiked. Uh, And all girls, is it, uh, who've been spiked? It it would be primarily women, but like we have seen that it it does happen to men as well. The the cases that we saw in Tralee with with those students getting spiked, it was, there was a mixed across all kind of gender identities. Um, But it primarily would be women who do fall victim to this. Right. God, that's dreadful. It really is. Uh, somebody, uh, Tom and Kel, saying bouncers should be allowed to search everybody coming in, uh, but that doesn't guarantee that uh, they'll find whatever it is that they're bringing in either. Uh, people can be very inventive in, in that sense, uh, but uh, I don't know. If uh, surprised and shocked me, I have to say, sort of, but uh, hopefully... Um uh, it's uh, something that's uh, unique uh, to a certain group of people and uh, will be brought under control uh, very quickly. Thanks for joining us again. That's Sorla. Thank, Thank you indeed. Sorla Brennan, uh, Vice President for Welfare with USI. Uh, we've uh, somebody else saying drink at home if you don't want to get spiked uh, which in itself is a worrying comment but thanks uh, for getting in touch if you have been in touch including Mick who says fair play to Alan Alan Laws coming on the radio to highlight the issue of homelessness and indeed for working with those people that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning 9am on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.